Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's an honor and pleasure to have you here. In this podcast, what I endeavor to do over many episodes is uh, walk through uh, reflections and explorations about what might be called a full-spectrum spirituality. That's a, a, a shadow and light spirituality, something that integrates the totality of our being from the physical, the energetic, to the psycho-emotional and spiritual, um, how we integrate all these levels through our being, uh, of our being together and uh, actively refine our understanding of our, these different dimensions of our being through practice. So the practices that I draw from, um, in case you're interested in practicing with me and my partner Terry, the practices we draw from are yin yoga, which is a very accessible, contemplative, non, I would say non-competitive and non-athletic form of yoga, very meditative style of practice. Um, we teach yin yoga. I've been teaching yin yoga for a number of years. Terry is a qigong teacher and she brings in uh, aspects of the very accessible energetic work or energetic practice of qigong with yin yoga. She combines those two nicely and beautifully. And, um, and I offer some Dharma uh, practices, Dharma, weekly Dharma class, where we reflect on the Buddhist teachings or something, some aspect of the Buddhist teachings and then apply that into our meditative practice and discuss it as a community of, of like-minded practitioners. If any of that is of interest to you, please consider joining us in the Riverbird Sangha, which is a, just an online community of yin yoga, qigong, and meditator, meditative practitioners. Uh, there's a free week two free week trial for you, and you can access that by checking out the link in our show notes or by going to my website, joshsummers.net, and subscribing to our newsletter. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll get a two free week access code to the Sangha, and you'll also receive a free copy of my relatively new ebook, The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga. And uh, so if you're yin curious, if you're interested in yin yoga, but not, maybe not know much about it, or if you've been practicing and or teaching for a while, I really want to sing or recommend that you check out this ebook. It's um, not so much a, like a broad overview of everything you need to know about yin yoga. That's covered in Bernie Clark's excellent book, The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga. But what I really give you in this book, The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga, are a collection of my essays about some some ways of thinking about the practice in a more refined way, specifically the, the four principles of yin yoga, how to think about those in context with functional alignment, and, and just how to articulate and speak to some of the many benefits of the practice. So if that's of interest, do check that out. Head over to my, my website, joshsummers.net. Subscribe to the newsletter. You'll get a free copy of the ebook, and you'll also get a free two-week trial in our uh, online practice community, the Riverbird Sangha. So without further ado, here's today's talk where I'm looking at the themes of awareness and conditionality, the perception of conditionality within our Dharma practice. And this talk is called Nothing Special. I hope you enjoy. In um, setting up for today, I just want to kind of give a quick recap of some of the themes we've been working with and, and exploring kind of like a, a, um, an episode recap. If you get into watching things on Netflix or and so on with, what was the recap of last week's episode? And if I were to kind of 
put those the recap together, I would say in general, one of the major themes we have been exploring is um, developing and cultivating ways of remembering awareness. So on one level, we're um, learning to recognize the nature of awareness in relationship to what awareness is aware of. And this can, can get into these kind of heady, heady ideas, but the idea that, that there's the content of awareness, there's the, the things that we're experiencing, and then there's the knowing mind or the, the, the faculty of awareness itself. Um, and I was, I've been reading um, a wonderful book by the Tibetan teacher Mingo Rinpoche, uh, where he shares the often used analogy for this, that, that um, just as there, the sky contains weather patterns and different formations of clouds, sometimes those clouds can, can really create a blanket over the sky. And from Earth, you know, we just see this covering. And we can't see anything beyond the clouds. It's just sort of this gray mass of various shades of darkness. But every now and then there might be a gap in the clouds, an opening in the clouds. And in that gap, uh, sometimes the sun way behind the clouds shines through, bright, brightly shines through. And when that occurs, uh, we're, we're confronted by the, the realization that the clouds are not, um, or I should say the, the sun is in no way conditioned by the clouds. The sun is this condition that is shining light upon the clouds, but is in no way influenced or altered by the clouds. And so in our practice, we get glimpses of the sun-like nature of our awareness, that we can have all sorts of conditions in our life, all sorts of weather conditions. And I want to speak to some of those that I've been hearing about throughout the Sangha. Um, but we can, we have these, these conditions that, that, uh, that we face in our life. And then our practice is about both acknowledging those conditions, waking up to those conditions, but also waking up to something that's outside of those conditions. And that's, that's awareness. And from awareness, you know, when we start to rest into that dimension of ourselves, it's, it's nothing that we will have to, we don't have to achieve this. We don't have to create it. We don't have to um, uh, do something superhuman to bring about this recognition. This is something we're recognizing that's already here. And the more we taste or experience glimpses of this awareness, we're then able to more uh, I would say more comprehensively look into, look upon, look within the conditions of our life. And I would say the, the functional role that that has is that when we are able to look on more evenly with more equanimity onto the conditions of our life, we're not just much better able to assess what we're doing within these conditions. And what we're doing is either going to aid and abet harmony, but oftentimes we can start to see that what we're doing is actually aiding and abetting disharmony or dukkha. And that's, again, the idea of tuning, that the more we tune ourselves, the more we, we our ear, in our spiritual ear, um, our spiritual awareness becomes sensitive to the kinds of things 
that uh, are propelling more disharmony and the kinds of things that are that are releasing that disharmony and and supporting um, peace, well-being, and understanding. And just jump into this that I, I, I shared last week how um, when awareness wakes up to itself, so when the sun of, of our of our being wakes up to its own bright luminous nature, um, we start to see that um, what we confront in life uh, is often tinged with difficulty or conflict. And oftentimes whenever we experience conflict, and I know this is certainly my true for my own life, is that when conflict arises, um, there's a deeply ingrained habit to point to blame or point out the blame. Who's to blame for this conflict? And the, the directionality of that finger of point can go all sorts of different directions. It can go often go out. That person's to blame. They're to blame. That group. This person. Yada yada yada. Or it can go in. I'm to blame. Uh, there's something. There's something uh, defective in me, or something problematic in me that's intrinsic and that I have to take full responsibility for. Um, and and this is this reflection is in no way a dismissal of responsibility. But when we understand that nothing arises independently, i.e., everything arises due to causes and conditions that support its arising, we start to see conditionality, as I was reflecting last week, it becomes more and more difficult to wholeheartedly blame. And that's the word, the phrase that my... Um, my Dharma colleagues, Linda Madero and Nellie Coffer used that, that in seeing conditionality, it's just much harder to wholeheartedly blame others or oneself. Um, and and I, I want to point that out because sometimes we, you know, there's a, a very important distinction that I've heard drawn at times, and I think it's relevant to this conversation, which is that we often... Um, I would say there's a human tendency to conflate, to confuse, to conflate and confuse caring and worry. And the idea is that if like, if you really care about something, you're going to worry about it. And and if you sort of release yourself from the worry that that will be a a cold hearted or a um, kind of a detached indifference, uh, that forms in the relationship to what you're what you're relating to. Um, but there's a way that we can both care for and take responsibility for our experience in a way that doesn't tilt towards blame or excessive worry. We can care and for and take responsibility is what I'm trying to say without falling into like the grooves of blaming and and even that it's sort of this related energy of excessive worry and i think that's the heart of the path in a way is like learning how do we care for things how do we take responsibility for things without tipping into kind of the the overwhelming cycles of anxiety and, and fear 
and or or tipping into indifference or 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 um, disconnection. And so, as I sent that, I sent out a newsletter, kind of riffing on some of these themes about conditionality, blame, freeing ourselves from the poison of blame, and. I was really struck by the wholehearted and very sincere responses that came from various segments or various sectors of the Sangha. <laughs> um, and it was just very, I'm always touched by the, by the, the feedback and reflections people chime in with, but um, without naming anyone in particular, I can just share with you in general uh, that there were themes, particularly on this theme of conflict in life, people were sharing themes about illness. Whether it's their own illness, physical, mental, the physical mental illness of someone in their life that they care about, or even the physical mental illness of society. There's, you know, there's illness could be, can be looked at and, and as showing up in people's practice and people's lives in all level of scale. And just like illness, um, others shared their conflict, their, their tense relationship with aging. And again, that could be their own personal aging, the, what the bodies can and can't do now at a certain stage or a certain age. Or the aging of often parents or people in our life that we are somewhat uh, responsible for and the challenges that come with that. Others have shared about death, death of anywhere, anything from a, a pet, a beloved pet, to a family member, sibling, child, parents again, family members, friends. And I was also touched by some of the shares that spoke to separation. Uh, these don't come in as, as sometimes these don't get shared as much because it, it may feel a little bit too personal, but I was very touched by sh some shares around the, the estrangements that often get um, painfully highlighted around this time of year when there's family gatherings happening on large scales um, and if there is is a, a fracture in a relationship or an estrangement or a separation or a misunderstanding that's leading to a kind of a cold war in a family, how painful that can be. And next to all that list, a illness, aging, death, separation, I wrote down the word primary. And I added or appended the word primary because I think these are conditions of life that we are guaranteed as humans. And the Buddha referred to them as dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, um, often translated as that which is difficult to bear. But these are the primary forms of dukkha that again we're guaranteed as humans and I, i'm particularly using that word guaranteed because often when they occur the the finger of blame can come out illness aging 
death, separation, blame. Blame often has a quiet or implicit role in how we relate to these primary forms of dukkha. We either blame others or blame ourselves. What haven't I done right? We, and another way of saying this is we take it personally. We take the primary conditions of life personally. And while this can, you know, this is first thing Monday morning, you know, what was your morning <laughs> meditation reflection about? Oh, aging, illness, death, separation, dukkha. You know, it's like, why do we do that? Why do we bring this to mind? Why do we call this to heart? Well, the my understanding of the Buddhist path, the Buddhist practice path, is that these prime, while these primary forms of dukkha are unavoidable, I think the Buddha described how the secondary forms of dukkha are optional. Essentially, there's forms of pain and suffering that are unavoidable in life, and then. Uh, in really acknowledging what those unavoidable forms are and, and, and confronting them directly, not avoiding or denying them, but confronting them wholeheartedly. We can then, through a reflective life, examine what we're adding to the primary condition of dukkha that is either alleviating unnecessary suffering or creating more agitation creating more conflict. I wrote down, uh, this is a, I know I've shared this at least once, but I wrote down a, a little line in my notebook that was a one line that I remember seeing on a note card at the, in, that was in the kitchen. It was sort of a, a note card placed at eye level in the kitchen of the Insight Meditation Society. And going back about 20 years, I was, um, in my early days, I would try to go on retreat as much as I could when I was in graduate school. And because I was a graduate student, I didn't have a lot of income. So I was relying on financial support from the Insight Meditation Society to attend. And one of the things, one of the programs they had was that you could attend retreats as a work study retreat, meaning you would work about four to five hours a day in the kitchen or in housekeeping or something. And then you could practice for the other uh, half of the day. And so I was doing a work retreat and I was working in the kitchen. And I remember there was a lot of kitchen duties I had, but I kept seeing this one line. And so this is what I build up to. I kept seeing this one line in this note card. And the, the, the line was, a falling leaf does not scream. A falling leaf does not scream. And it it became this kind of a, a contemplative um, tool in a way, a, a, a koan, a, a question of contemplative interest. What is that? What is the teaching within that statement? Why did somebody think it so important to write it down on a, on a note card and put it at eye level so that the cooks and pot washers and humans that would occupy the kitchen during the day could see this or for, that they could see it. And of course, a falling leaf 
could be rendered as a, a symbol of death, a symbol of transformation, a symbol of a, a phase of a cycle coming to an end. But the leaf doesn't scream. I think what the, the poet was getting at is that we humans, we face these primary conditions with a scream. And that's not a pro that's not something to be shameful about. That's not something to um, pretend we don't do if when we're more spiritual. I think it's a, it's an energy to become uh, awake to. And what I want to suggest is that we often think of meditation as something we do to sit down and clear our mind or calm ourselves or soothe ourselves. You could think of the, we often have, have this kind of image of practice, like it will function like a, um, a spiritual pacifier. Remember toddlers or children sucking on a pacifier, but a more, I think more, a more mature practice invites us to explore the very themes of our life that we encounter conflict within. That could be our relationship to ourself, interpersonal relationships, family relationships, work stuff. And it's in the how the way in which the practice gives us a time to reflect on the conditions of our life. We're able to explore through a reflective process. You know, what are we adding? What are, what kinds of uh, what what habit patterns of relationship are we adding that fuels the the kind of dukkha? that I think the Buddha referred to as unnecessary dukkha. The dukkha that's born out of a, a reflexive scream to the primary conditions of existence. And so just to wind this reflection down, um, a, a friend of mine, I call him a spiritual friend, uh, I, I, I kind of identify, I don't know if this is the way for you, but identify certain of my friends that I met after the Dharma, after I came to the Dharma as my, my post-Dharma friends. And then I have my pre-Dharma friends, <laughs> friends who have no interest in spirituality whatsoever. And I met at a different stage in my life. But um, this friend made the comment about their own practice saying he was realizing that there was no insignificant moments in the meditation. And nothing in meditation was insignificant. And they had shared how they used to have this, this view that if their mind was planning a grocery list or you know a to-do list for the day, that that felt unspiritual, that that was somehow a, an, an, an inappropriate experience to be having while practicing. But they were, they, were, they were coming to more of the insight that there was nothing insignificant occurring in practice. Everything was significant. And I, I just want to um, kind of hit that note as we go into our sitting today, that um, 
Just as my friend was saying, Ajahn Chah himself said, everything, if you let it, is teaching us, or everything, if you let it, is teaching you. So what does this mean? It's suggesting that whatever is occurring, it's teaching us about how we're relating to it. If we let everything in, we can learn. Let's say it's a thought of planning. Well, why do we plan? Is And is all planning bad? We have to plan a little bit. So again, it raises questions, and it's really holding these questions openly in our practice that I think leads us to better insights about how we can be with these energies. Do we cut all planning off and say, no, 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 I'm only going to live in the moment and never plan again in my life? That's probably not the best strategy. <laughs> That's not going to work. And then if we say, oh, no, I'm going to plan, 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 I'll, I'll plan every second of my day and time block every moment. That's also probably not going to work. So it's somewhere between these two poles of never and always. We, through reflection, find our way to a middle path, the middle way. And if we really let this is the, the, the idea that I'm trying to uh, build upon from last week is just sitting with ourselves when we practice and letting our life reveal itself within the sitting. So not trying to do anything, not trying to say what our life should be in terms of how it reveals itself, but letting our, our life present itself to it to us as it will. And often what I'm trying to say is often when we when we're when we're permissible like that, when our the membrane of our meditation practice is permeable to our life, the the dynamics in our life where we feel caught in conflict tend to appear. They tend to uh, arise. And that's not a problem. I would say that's a that's a that's a um a benefit. That's a a um a feature of practice and through opening wholeheartedly to our conflicts we can as larry rosenberg would say begin to transform the experience of whatever conflict feels like bad karma we can open to the, what we experience as negative bad karma conditions that are not pleasant and transform it into good dharma. That might mean we get insight about how to nurture the conditions of our experience to have less conflict in them. That might be one avenue that we explore. And it might also just mean a, a more absolute de de development where we, we have conditions that are kind of an impasse is that there, we can't really see what we can do, what we can change, what we can add. We're stuck. And there's oftentimes in, in the human experience, I think we, we do face these impasses where we don't know what to do. It's not clear. But in those situations, there's still the bright sun behind the clouds waiting to be glimpsed. And that itself has an insight. That, that itself brings a, a transformation of understanding. So the final, this is the, this is the title of the talk, nothing special. 
there's a the the Zen teacher um, Charlotte Joko Beck had a book called Nothing Special. So this is a a, a borrowing of her title. But the, the 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 teaching line is that when nothing is special, everything can be. So again, you hear nothing special. That immediately, in my mind, kind of brings in a sense of nothing special. Oh, I don't have to get excited. I shouldn't be excited about anything. I shouldn't care about anything. Nothing special. Treat everything like like cardboard. Just like treat everything like stale crackers. Nothing special. But when nothing's special, everything can be. The sacred is revealed in all things. So I just want to offer those reflections. I realize that's kind of a, a rambling uh, walk through some different ref- practice reflections. But we'll come into a sitting now, sit for about 20 minutes, and let nothing be special, but allow everything to be special. Let your practice be permeable to your life. Bring gentleness, care to any condition that arises, but especially to anything that holds conflict. And I know some of us are coming off the heels of a holiday family weekend. I'm not a mind reader, but I imagine old conflicts, new conflicts, we're human, conflicts will be there. So how can we hold those, be with those, listen and understand those, in service of wisdom and compassion. All right, I hope you enjoyed those reflections. I hope they open up some avenues for exploration, stimulate curiosity, and you know, uh, bring maybe a fresh perspective to how you're practicing, whether it's in yin yoga or meditation or qigong. Um, if you'd like to join us, and I just want to sing this out or uh, hit this note one more time. If you'd like to join us in our Riverbird Sangha, uh, please check out the link in the show notes or head over to my website, joshsummers.net, and subscribe to the newsletter. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll receive the two free week trial access code to the Sangha, as well as a free copy of the What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga. So those are two gifts just for stopping by that I want to share with you just for stopping by the website. And I hope they nurture and support your practice. Um, I will be giving a new episode soon. I have some interviews on deck, one with Donna Brooks on uh, grief and yoga. That's a follow-up interview that I've uh, done with her and um, really looking forward to sharing that with you as well as a conversation I had with an entrepreneur who developed a time management diary system called the Monk Manual. His name is Steve Lawson. I got an interview on deck with him that I'll be delivering soon. And I just want to point a flag or plant a flag around this because if you know a yogi in your life, uh, chances are they have um, interest in optimizing time management because when we when we optimize our time management where there's more time for being and and experiencing the, the the sublimeness of being if you will and i found this particular diary the um the monk manual to be a really great way to organize my day-to-day my week-to-week my month-to-month um, my to-dos and my values within those to-dos to really start to see those come get seeded into my life more directly. So um, that's all prelude to that conversation with Steve Lawson that's coming up. 
um, and I'll see you soon. Until I see you in the next episode, stay safe, stay strong, keep well, and keep practicing. Take good care.